Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Aerobility Inspirability, uh, our program to bring the wonderful world of aviation into our homes and gardens uh, to keep that great connection with the wonderful world of flying. Uh, and also to meet, obviously, some really inspiring people. And we've got a great one today. But before I hand you over to our great host, John Windover, I would just like to remind you guys that just under the video screen, you'll see a link to our virtual aerobility just giving page. If you do enjoy today, and if you would like to support this program into the future, please do consider making a small donation. It makes a huge difference, and obviously it adds a bit of gift aid as well. So if you would consider donating, that would be great for helping to support this program. And I'll put the link onto the screen as well, periodically during our talk. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to uh, bring John into the room. John, how are you? Very good, Mike. Thank you very much. Uh, another another sunny day. I think we're five weeks into the Inspirability Talks now. I look out the window and uh, I'm I'm just ready. I'm bursting at the seams now to go flying, as I'm sure many of you are. Um, our kids have become baking ninjas. Um, we uh, probably could give poor Hollywood a run for his money. Uh, and um, we're just uh, very much looking forward to getting up in the air again. But um, what a treat we have for you today. Um, we are still reeling in this household from what we saw on the uh, on our TV screens yesterday during the commemorative uh, celebrations uh, of uh, VE75. And there was probably no better way to express the country's gratitude than to see the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows, undertake that wonderful fly past over London. And for me, that evoked patriotism, pride. And I think during these periods of uh, uncertainty, I think it was an extra special uh, sight for us all to witness. So our inspirability talk uh, this week is going to take on a slightly different format um, because our guest speaker um, is none other than squadron leader Martin Pert, who is uh, otherwise known as Red One, leader of the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows. And we saw there what the Red Arrows do best. It's it's thrilling us all on the ground in the UK. But of course, the Red Arrows are also known uh, across the world, acting as ambassadors for for Great Britain and helping us to promote uh, British industry abroad, which of course, uh, Perty, as he's known, will tell us a lot more about. But what I uh, what I first want to do is, um, is just give you an insight into Perty's impressive career. Um, so um, Martin Pert, he's been in the Royal Air Force for 20 years and in the year 2000 graduated from uh, the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell and went on to uh, conduct his uh, pilot training and was streamed to fly fast jets and was a creamy, which uh, in REF speak is a first tour QFI. And on and, and for Perty, that was on the uh, the Hawk aircraft at REF Valley. Um, he ended that tour uh, as the Hawk display pilot in 2006 before going on to fly the Harrier uh, in a very um, interesting and different role, of course, from displaying uh, the Hawk. Three years on the front line representing uh, the UK abroad, uh, but this time in Afghanistan in a very different different way. Um, and in 2011, spent some time um, on 100 Squadron, which is the aggressor squadron of the Royal Air Force, uh, before joining the Red Arrows. Uh, and uh, of course, this is where we um, first met uh, Perty uh, for that initial three-year tenure uh, on the team. He was on went on a Middle East tour. Uh, of course, this was during the Olympics, so conducted uh, the uh, famous uh, fly pass there over the stadium 
it was the Queen's Jubilee year. And of course, it was also uh, the Commonwealth Games in that period of time as well. Um, Perty then went on to back to the front line to fly the Typhoon. Uh, and in 2015, became a flight commander and uh, was very much back on the front line conducting QRA duties and NATO air policing um, in, the, uh, in the Baltic states there, um, and also conducting operations in the Middle East. But uh, he was getting a bit homesick from Scampton. So uh, Perty uh, returned back to RAF Scampton uh, at the end of 2017. And that's when the, uh, the leader of the team uh, takes up the role officially. Of course, we see the new leader, um, you know, that following season, uh, following the, uh, the winter workup. So it was in 2018, a big year for Perty as uh, it was RAF 100. We're going to hear so much uh, more information about that fantastic career and of course the time spent um, in the Red Arrows and of course looking at the North American tour as well getting some insights and uh, behind the scenes stories about what it actually uh, was to uh, to lead the team over to the US and back again so Perty welcome how are you? Hi Wendy yeah very good thanks indeed thanks for the, uh, the lovely introduction and the, the ceremonious entry from from crowd right there that was wonderful I'm really good thanks making the most of the great weather that we've got I know, I know. Well, we've, our, our kids are in the back garden, actually, as we speak. They've been told to uh, leave the house uh, on pain of death. They're busy playing with the puppy, so they're uh, having a great time. How about, how about your family? Yeah, they're much the same, out in the back garden, just making sure that we don't have a, a Sky News moment as they walk in the back here and not streaming 4K videos. But, yeah, we're all really good, thanks. And clearly, you know, a busy day at work for us yesterday on the bank holiday and enjoying the rest of the weekend um, with Monday off in lieu for us, uh, having had you know quite a quite a busy one yesterday. So it's just great that the weather's like this. It just keeps, I think, everyone's spirits up at these at these clearly difficult times. Of course. And of course, one of the things we're doing in Airability is delivering these these talks to um, you know, really help people at least imagine they're outside of the house for for an hour and just take us away and immerse ourselves back into aviation. So as I said, um, we are taking on a different format at the moment. So we're going to let Perty uh, give you a presentation on his career and uh, the uh, the wonderful um, experiences he's had uh, to date in the uh, in the Royal Air Force aerobatic team. So Perty, we're going to hand it over to you now. Um, okay. Once Perty's finished, uh, we'll take some questions. We've got lots of questions coming in. Uh, do keep. Uh, sending in your messages on the uh, on the live chat um and uh i will see you very soon perty over to you thanks very much wendy and um the genesis of all of this was born out of uh, some events about a month or so ago with airability who'd asked me to speak at an aurora flight event down at gatwick and this was just before the start of the um, the measures that we're all under um with the, the current crisis and and, and the people who asked me to do them are magnanimous enough to tell me that it's it's for their benefit generally or, or the company or, or whoever they happen to work for. So I thought actually what better than just trying to combine it with a charity that are very dear to my heart. We have worked with their ability very closely as Wendy says from way back um, in sort of 2010, 2011 where I first came to, to meet the charity. Um, and you know, we're the lucky ones at the moment where we're the ones able to get out there and fly. We are able to go to work at the moment to maintain mandatory currencies. Clearly, we do a lot of meet and greets around at the various air shows around the country. And whilst we are learning that um, a huge number of those air shows are being cancelled, certainly through sort of June and July, and we're unable to do those, what better substitute than for me to come and talk to you 
um, this afternoon. So I spoke to her ability at the Aurora event in a, in a similar fashion. I was meant to be there live, but it was the first of these um, lockdown measures. So I actually did it virtually from home and the concept worked really well. So I was able to sit here in my Red Arrows bedecked study and talk to um, the, the crowd that they had there. And, and it, it was you know, actually really engaging, despite the fact that we don't get that kind of face-to-face -face interaction. And what better way to do it than, than here on this channel on a you know Saturday afternoon, albeit in the beautiful weather, you might even be sat there watching your phone. So what I thought I'd do is just effectively collate some holiday slides. And I'm going to just take you through the majority of last year, 2019, which was a very special year for the Red Arrows. And it was a special year for, for me as the leader. And clearly that's taken on even more poignancy given that we don't know the state of play with the airshow um, circuit for 2020. So it really is a kind of look back, some cross sections of how we got into the display season and some of the challenges that we faced much like any year, much like any airshow display performer, but as a national strategic asset, how we went about curing some of those problems. And clearly the highlight for most of us and hopefully you at home via the social media channels was the North American tour that we took on for the latter half of the of the season. So from um, the beginning of August, we departed these shores. And I've just got some wonderful imagery that we got from, uh, you know, our very talented media team here at the Red Arrows, our photographers who are airborne. And I just thought you might like to see some of those pictures that you might not have seen on social media and just hear my take on some of those bits behind the scenes. So sort of starting straight ahead, I mean, Wendy gave me such a, a beautiful introduction. So thanks very much for that, Wendy. I'm not going to canter through my career to kind of give you, you know, my level of, of credibility to it all. You've heard most of it. But, you know, as Wendy said, I started my time as a as a really wet behind the ears um, in flying instructor over at RF Valley in Wales. And, and you know, it's quite a, an interesting time when you go through your flying training, you expect to then go off to the front line and fly your frontline type of Harrier, Jaguar, Tornado, as it was in, in the days that I was being sort of role disposed. And actually then I was told that I was being kept back as an instructor at Aria Valley on the, the Hawk T1, the same aircraft that we fly on the Red Arrows now, but in a training capacity. And, you know, I was 23 years old. I was initially pretty disappointed. Aria Valley is in a beautiful part of the world in Northwest Wales on the island of Anglesey. But as a 23 year old, it, it's not particularly expansive for your horizon. So watching your buddies go off to the front line and fly those technological fighters and, you know, going off and doing the things that we train for was actually a bit of a bitter blow. But in 2006, I was extremely lucky to be selected as the display pilot for the Hawk T1. And, and that probably just started my, my love for the airshow circuit and, and displaying the capabilities of whatever it happens to be that we're flying at the time. And, you know, I spent a wonderful year on the airshow scene with this aircraft here, X-ray X-ray 195 and X-ray X-ray 159, two aircraft with very similar registrations. I can't tell you the number of times that I got into 195 thinking I was getting into 159 and had a wonderful year. And it really was a maturing for me as a pilot to be given that responsibility at the age of 24 um, to go off onto that scene. Had some ama you know, amazing moments, some, some quite comical moments as well. You know, one of the highlights is one of the little things that were, were given to me as a gift, um, including a life-size replica of me. It, it wasn't actually life-size. It was about sort of seven inches tall, but he got the detail almost perfectly. And he even gave me one of six. So I don't really know what happened to the other five of those models. And if you do know, then um, I don't really want to know, to be perfectly honest. At the end of that time, as a flying instructor, I was then posted off to the front line. And this was the moment, you know, I'd really been waiting for. I spent three years there training peers, training people much older than me generally how to fly the Hawk, which was 
incredibly satisfying and like I say, incredibly maturing. But what I couldn't wait to go and do was get to my frontline type. And that that's you know much the same for most people in the services is to get into the role that they've trained so hard for. I was incredibly lucky and, and I was selected for the Harrier, which was my first choice of aircraft. And I was able to take um, the Harrier, which is just such an iconic piece of British engineering. I know you had Emos um, Waterfall talking about the Harrier a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into detail about that aircraft. But you know, suffice to say, there's an awful lot of things that that aircraft could do. And flying it between the years of 2007 to 2010, when it went out of service, pretty much saw the whole gambit of operations with it. Flying to HMS Ark Royal, um, doing some of the uh, you know the kind of wacky landings that it can do. There's a you know a picture of one of my oppos doing a cross deck landing, as it's known up in the top left there, which just seems all sorts of bizarre. You know, landing on the deck, which is a particularly small moving feast in the North Sea or out in North America where we took it to, and then clearly taking that aircraft out on operations, heavily involved in um, Operation Herrick at the time, so the operations out over Afghanistan in support of Allied troops. And, um, you know, it was a real privilege to be able to do all of these things, to do the hovering, to be able to explore the complete range of this aircraft. I became a qualified flying instructor on the Harrier as well towards the end of my time on one squadron, teaching, you know, new pilots how to get the most out of an aircraft that had about 17 different modes of landing. So very different to the F-35 that we're bringing in today, um, but still, you know, just a hugely evocative piece of, of our history. Spent a reasonable amount of time out in Afghanistan, which is where it clearly between sort of 2006 and 2010, the aircraft um, type service uh, being deleted from, from RAF, the RAF inventory. And Kandahar Airfield was somewhere that most of the Harrier Force came to know and love. Um, you know, a great shot of that airfield from above and, and a sprawling airfield with, you know, almost sort of 25,000 people on board uh, on that airfield. And, you know, just... Uh, for me, some times that were filled with, you know, absolute sheer joy and, and clearly some some pretty dreadful times out there as well. You know, the air, the airfield operations, the, the, the ops that we were going on, the people we were off to support and just the valiant effort by absolutely everyone on Joint Force Harrier and the surrounding military to get those airfield, uh, those operations in force was was a real eye opener for me as a, a still relatively junior pilot. Clearly, you can see us all hard at work on the right there. That is about one of the only photographs I had because I, I just had a little um, first sort of Genesis uh, digital snappy snap type camera. And that seemed to be the only photograph that I could find on it, which is a bit disappointing, really. But I have got some more stored in the annals and the logbooks. For me, um, it wasn't the best of times. Uh, it's reasonably well documented on you know my sort of social media. But um, towards the back end of my time in Afghanistan, had a pretty catastrophic accident, which um, I was forced to eject from my aircraft from. Now, notwithstanding the injuries that I received to my back and, uh, you know, just the normal sort of issues that you would deal with with ejection, um, Martin Baker got the absolute money shot um, when somebody had that one snappy snap camera similar to mine and took a photograph out the sort of side cockpit of their window. Um, not the proudest of moments for me and actually a huge lesson. You know, if you're going to learn anything about flying, this is one of the ways to do it. And it really changed me as a pilot for uh, much for the better, I hope. But also, again, a, a real maturing aspect to, to my time in the service. And again, I learned a lot about the chain, the system, the way these things work once somebody has been involved, the mental health support that you get and clearly the physical support that you get in terms of your rehabilitation 
I didn't fly for three and a half months because of the force of that ejection. And like I say, I cracked um, two vertebrae in my back, which meant, you know, even walking to start with was a bit of an issue. But I think I knew that, you know, the Air Force and fast jet flying was for me when by about day five or six of being out the cockpit now, having been sort of medevaced back home to Britain, all I wanted to do was to just get back in the cockpit of that aeroplane which I was lucky enough to do about three and a half months later with a good friend of mine, um, James McMillan McZee, who I then went on to serve on the Red Arrows with. But it did change me, and it changed me much for the better. And I look back on the pictures that I'm showing you now and almost can't really believe that that happened to me. I can still uh, find some joy in these photographs. Um, the chap in the bottom left there is, uh, is one of our engineers who was dealt uh, with a, the kind of crash team to go out to the rescue. And... Um, is not an armorer by trade. And you can tell that because just over his right elbow are 38 rockets that have not been uh, deployed. And he's also got a paved way for just cooking away by his right elbow. So um, maybe someone reappraised him of the situation and got him out of there pretty quickly, but you can sort of see the damage that was done to the cockpit there. And then clearly the seat that saved my life. And I'm forever indebted to another amazing British engineering company called Martin Baker, who make those ejection seats and who we've had dealings with um, since in the Red Arrows. Uh, not just my holiday snaps, the boys on the crash team managed to get the obligatory, here's me lifting a Harrier onto a crane. And uh, once he got his, then um, clearly his supervisor needed one and then his supervisor also needed one. But, you know, I show these not to mock these guys. You know, this is just goes some way and you'll have heard of the stiff British upper lip and, you know, the military way of being able to find anything, uh, find black humour in almost anything. And once the guys knew that I was fine, the sort of level of support that I had from them, even when they're sort of sending me photographs like this in my hospital bed, made, you know, really made the, the recovery process that much easier for me. I went back to the Harrier, um, managed to fly the Harrier for about another year and a half before it then went out of service. And again, I was very lucky to fly the Harrier on its last ever sortie in the 16 ship that we flew on the 15th of December in 2010. And I was right out on the right-hand side of the formation. I remember thinking, I better get this right because I'm thinking about trying to join the Red Arrows pretty soon. And if any of the Red Arrows are watching this, then this is not going to go very well. Thankfully, it did go reasonably well. And I won't take you through the Red Arrow selection process because it's documented enough in other places. And we've lifted the lid on that selection process in a number of documentaries and a number of um, these sort of presentations. But in 2011, I was lucky enough to be selected to join the team for three years. And as, as Wendy alluded to, an amazing three years. This is where you really cut your teeth as a Red Arrows pilot. Every year on the Red Arrows has something special. There is always an anniversary to be served. And uh, you know, 2012 to 2014 was no exception. 2012, we had the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, which involved today uh, to count about six flypasts over London, down the Mall, over Windsor Castle, Coupled that with the Olympics that were going on in 2012 and the opening flypast for the 2012 Winter Olympics, um, it was a really great place to cut my teeth in my first year as Red 2 on the Red Arrows. I then served in the Red 4 and Red 8 roles, respectively, and had a wonderful time in 2014, where it was not only the 50th anniversary of the Red Arrows or the 50th display season of the Red Arrows, but we also um, had just come off the back of a tour to the Middle East where it was the first tour in a reasonable period for various um, for various reasons, where we'd been able to take the aircraft um, all the way down to Oman 
uh, and back via places such as Dubai and um, Saudi, Qatar and Bahrain. And it was just, uh, you know, an incredible way to take a single engine aeroplane all the way over to the Middle East, show off our wares and a little bit of, um, you know, just sprinkling the seed for what was to come later on, especially with 2019 and me being in the lead. At the end of my time in the Reds, um, I sort of determined that I hadn't finished on the front line. I had some unfinished business to do. And whilst I was lucky enough to be promoted to the rank of squadron leader uh, in the Reds during my time there, um, I was desperate to get back onto an operational fighter. And purely by virtue of timing yet again and volunteering for a, a position up at RAF Lossiemouth, I was selected to fly the Typhoon, Eurofighter Typhoon, on a brand new squadron, two squadron who were just transferring from the Tornado to the Typhoon. Um, an oppo of mine had asked whether I could join him in kind of uh, getting this fledgling squadron off the ground. And we had some incredible times taking that aircraft with a brand new squadron again around the world. Flying the Typhoon, a fighter that you'll, those of you out there who know anything about it, an incredibly powerful, incredibly capable fourth generation fighter of which is a real asset to the Royal Air Force was a real pilot's dream, especially coming from something so mandrolic as the Harriet. The Typhoon uh, sorties themselves can be quite arduous. They can be quite long, especially the operational ones. And it can be times of abject boredom interspersed with these little snippets of complete and utter concentration. Again, quite similar to flying in the Reds in some respect, albeit I found the Reds flying to be more about 30 minutes of pure focus was a typhoon flying was about knowing when to focus that attention in what could be a five or six hour operational sortie. Again, I mentioned we took the aircraft around the world. You know, this is just um, heading down over uh, Sicily, uh, Mount Etna, you know, a great picture of that volcano as we went down to the Middle East and even further. And actually I was lucky enough to take the typhoon all the way around to Japan in 2016 at the time when the Red Arrows were also in uh, China and the Far East. So a kind of conjoined effort with us and the typhoons out in Japan and South Korea, and then the Reds doing their softer diplomacy elsewhere in the world. Like I say, sort of interspersed boredom, trying to fit the shadow onto the back end of the Voyager for about five hours as you followed it across the Atlantic to relieve some of that boredom. And, you know, I often get asked questions of what on earth do you do in an aircraft for that long when you can't stand up, you can't have a cup of coffee, and you can just about go to the bathroom, but it's a pretty precarious process. And that's one of the ways you do it. You find things to, to sort of relieve, um, you know, those low arousal states and clearly reasonably well aroused on the right there as we arrived at our destination after six hours. And this photograph was taken and for one of my engineer friends who specifically asked for that facial expression. It's not one of my norms. I flew the aircraft through until 2017. And by this time, I knew that I'd been selected for the Red Arrows, which was... I'll come to in a moment, but, you know, a really uh, defining moment in my career on operations uh, out over the Middle East in Iraq and Syria, involved in Mosul and Raqqa and places that you will have heard about in the news, um, knowing that I was going to fly my last sortie in a typhoon on an operational mission to then come back and join the Royal Air Force aerobatic team. And just some pictures here on my last operational sorties on the left there. Tradition is that you get hosed down at the end of that last sortie. And actually, that was pretty refreshing given the temperatures in Cyprus um, in the middle of July when that, that sortie was flown. So, you know, quite inviting. 
and actually it just gives goes some way to show you about those those kind of operational sources with the f-22 raptor an aircraft that we we've come to really embrace on the air show circuit especially when we're out in north america and probably an aircraft that even pilots still are wowed about um, and being able to fly sorties with F-22s and, you know, get to know their cohort, get to form partnerships with our allies out there was, was again, one of those proud moments in my career that I knew I'd be able to take back into the Reds when I then was subsequently allowed to join the team in 2000 and late 2017. I had a wonderful handover from um, the then squadron leader Montenegro, who was handing over as Red One, who some of you will now know has come back as my boss. He's come back as uh, officer commanding Red Arrows. Um, but we knew that we had a big challenge upon us. And 2018 was a significant year for the Reds. It was the centenary of the Royal Air Force. And we knew that the Reds would be spearheading some of that campaign. The flypasts that were involved were topped off on the 10th of July um, when we flew down the mall at the back end of 100 aircraft. And in fact, there were 103 aircraft by the time we got um, to the Red Arrows. But to be able to stream red, white and blue down the mall, which in itself is a significant moment, at the back end of the Royal Air Force's 100th anniversary with me in the lead was was just another one of those life ticks. So, you know, I, I really did pinch myself both on the day and even now that I had that opportunity to take part in. But as soon as we stepped away from 2018, it, everything in the Red Arrows is cyclical. It's about moving on to the next event. So even on the 10th of July, when we landed at RAF Benson for the refuel, quick bit of lunch, quick brief, back in the jets, take them back up to RAF Scampton and get on with the task in hand, which is the rest of that season. And thankfully, the rest of 2018 uh, went reasonably seamlessly. And then the focus for us was 2019. And that's what I'll really major on um, for about the next 25 to 30 minutes. As you know, it's a cyclical effort. We have a new team selected. We start our winter training around about November and 2019. 18 into 2019 was no different. We had Damo Green and Gregor and Simo join us. Um, so Gregor Ogston has read four on the left of the picture and then Simo kind of middle right of the picture. And then we had a returning pilot, Steve Morris, squadron leader Steve Morris, who I served on the team with beforehand, who for various experience reasons, we needed to come back into the Reds to kind of bolster our corporate knowledge to, to help me out as a new leader, um, but also get ready for what was going to be a momentous tour. And training for the Red Arrows is, is a public event. There is no hiding the team. And, you know, it becomes obvious even from day one of training that um, our very dedicated band of enthusiasts all around the world, but particularly around Scampton, of whom some of the pictures that you see here and the newspaper clippings on, you know, a, on a news day in December would really show the new boys exactly what a stage that they set out for themselves but it also reminded us all of the power of the Red Arrows, that we were being featured in the red tops, the broadsheets, on almost a daily basis, especially if you know they caught that particularly um, crucial photograph, like the moon on the left there, um, or the particularly, uh, you know, the funny one on the bottom right, which isn't real, but managed to, to fool a few people on April Fool's Day that we had flown under a Devon Pier. Allied with that at the same time, and I'm sure some of you will have seen it, was a documentary that was being filmed at the time called uh, Red Arrows, Kings of the Sky. And that was filmed all the way through from my day one, even before day one was taking over as the leader. And that just added to the pressure, this public stage that we're training on, but to have a documentary team that were, documentary team that were filming with us with a camera positioned pretty much over my shoulder 
uh, every single hour of our Red Arrows professional day and even into our personal lives just added somewhat to the feeling that we were off to embark upon something special for three, for 2018 and then 2019. Um, it was a particularly, uh, it was a pleasurable experience. I, you know, I can't knock it. And the guys who are making those documentaries are very understanding and really sensitive to the pressures that we feel, um, especially in the, in the flight safety arena, because if there's any distraction, that becomes a flight safety hazard immediately. Um, but it provided some wonderful memories. And even if, six or seven people watched it on channel five i don't really care because it was the one it was the most wonderful diary for me to be able to show my grandkids in the future there's some hilarious moments red 10 won't thank me but my you know my 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 favorite moment of that entire documentary is when cos poor old cos my next door neighbor was utterly stitched up at his first ever public speaking event when they didn't turn the microphone on and in the heat of the moment you probably have seen it you know it's the classic tap on the mic it's in off mode make sure you turn it on and i really felt for cause because that just it wasn't fair but actually i think it was you know one of those coy looks from the documentary makers just to give them that wink that they had the one up on us at all times um other hilarious moments that come with being in the red arrows that kind of get shielded away from public life the lincolnshire public absolutely adore their local team and and rightly so you know they really embrace us and we're made to feel very welcome here in lincoln where we live rf scampton is about three miles to the north of lincoln city center we fly over the city on almost every training sortie because it forms part of our it's within part of our airspace that is is ours solely to use but that also means that you know on a slow news day we receive a little bit of attention um i never ever would have believed that yours truly a six foot two sort of lanky streak of um, ginger would feature on what's known as the Lincolnshire sexy list in 2018 but I made it and um, I made it to number 30 and I'm taking it because number 30 out of 50 is pretty good in my books and it was 30 people so the sexiest people in Lincolnshire so I'm going to split that half and half and give you that I'm probably the 15th um, sexiest male and um, the only feelings, you know, that I felt that this may be slightly inappropriate or slightly disappointing, you know, slight disappointment was when I found out that the 95 year old Nicholas Parsons had beaten me up to the top and then complete ignominy when the next year in 2019, um, one of the stinking new boys made it into number three. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Damo. I'm surprised he's actually still on the team after that event. Clearly, some other bits behind the scenes that you don't often get to see, and that's for good reason, because they are private events until much afterwards. Um, you know, a private audience with the Queen, and, and this was something that the team themselves were very proud of. You know, we had a good hour and a half with Her Majesty, uh, invited in for a private lunch reception, because the Queen herself has seen the Red Arrows, clearly a number of times, pointing directly at her coming down the mall. But what she had never seen until 2014, when I was on the team, She'd never actually seen a full Red Arrows display. And we were very lucky to be able to provide the Queen herself a private Red Arrows display. I say private. It went to the rest of the station at RAF Marham in 2014. And then at the beginning of 2018, the team were invited down to Windsor Castle um, to meet the Queen in the private residence. And that in itself was just such a huge honour for all of us involved. I've spun the story a few times, but I'm going to spin it again in case you haven't heard it. The picture on the top left there is the Queen, who, when we presented her with a picture of us flying over Buckingham Palace, whipped out her handbag. And there is protocol about talking about the Queen's handbag. And clearly, I would never reveal what's in the Queen's handbag. 
but she did pull out what you might just be able to make in her hand, a six by four um, sort of home printed photograph that looked like it had been printed on a, on a home printer um, by one of her uh, young relatives, one of her great granddaughters, I believe. And it was a picture of us flying over Windsor Castle on the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And her great granddaughter or the relative had given it to her, had taken such pride in printing it, giving it to the Queen. She'd written on the back and drawn the sort of red, white and blue in her own crayons. And the Queen had kept this photograph ever since then, sort of five years previously. And I've managed to dine out on the story forevermore that the Queen keeps a picture of me in her handbag. But, you know, it just went some way to just make us understand of what we were representing. Yes, we know we're representing the UK on a national stage, but we really are representing the Queen wherever we take um, this military outfit. Training sort of continued. Just uh, stand by one. There was always going to be a technical fail, so stand by just one. I can tell you my little Red Arrow story, Curti. Um, so you've got your... Um, it, you know, your every, every display and every practice, I understand, is is videoed for the purposes of, you know, of the debrief. Um, and uh, Biggin Hill is obviously a, an airfield that is close to the hearts of um, those in the Red Arrows, as it was the first public display, I believe, in 1965 by the team. And um, uh, it's it's an airfield that's very close by to me. And uh, I happen to find myself uh on the uh, b-axis which is you know you know the, the center of the uh of the crowd line there and on the saturday of the biggin hill show a couple of years ago um i got a, a text from uh, uh lingy who was on the team at the time saying is that you windy so of course that was um that was the uh, cue for me the following day to sit on my friend's shoulders and stare down the camera of your uh of your videographer ready for the debrief so apologies if you saw my face in the debrief there the I next did. morning and you know what you know what happens if you get seen on camera in a red arrows debrief has anyone ever told you that no so if you're seen on camera there's a there's a mandatory fine that goes into our fining pot um there's a fines for a number of things like smoke crimes if you put the smoke on too early or too late if you get the wrong color clearly that can be quite expensive um but one of them is if you're seen on camera for any reason um then you then you automatically owe a fine. So usually it's Red 10 because he's clearly the one who's supervising most of the time. Um, and, you know, in Lingy's era, it was always great sports to try and get the cameramen to try and film Lingy. And that, he became pretty savvy pretty quickly, as has Cos, who I think has managed to avoid pretty much all fines since he joined in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I owe you in that case then. I'll, uh, I'll make sure I put a uh, – how much is it, a pound? Uh, we'll call it a pound for your first yeah, infraction, and then we'll just see what it goes to from there. <laughs> um, okay. My wind-up computer is just, is just having a reboot, so I suggest what we do is we either talk amongst ourselves whilst I just bring it back online or um, or take a pause, whatever you want to do, but apologies. It's, uh, no, it's my absolutely fine, No, 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 not at all. Um, Mike, have you got any uh, video that we can uh, we can show while Perty gets the machine going again? Um, while... While you do that, Mike, um, what I shall uh, what I should also say is that um, I was I was privileged um, and uh, you know honoured to have the opportunity to fly um, uh, as passenger in the back of one of your red jets um, some years ago. I did, and it was it was through it was through industry. I'm in the defence industry, um, and um, so this um, this opportunity was was fantastic. And what I what, what, there's a number of questions that have come in about 
you know, um, what inspires you to to become a pilot? What inspires you to join the Royal Air Force? And uh, I think it's a it's it's a question on the lips of many people who who you know have the opportunity to talk to to you guys on the team and those in in some sort of position um, in the public eye concerning mm -hmm. you know what their career goals are. Sure. Um, and sure. it's one of those things, isn't it? When you're a boy at an air show and you you know you you see something, it's something that sticks in your mind and it and it carries itself through with you through your you know through your schooling and you think actually hold on a minute it's now my it's now my make or break time as a teenager i've got my exams i'm beginning to understand the the purpose of my education and it's now that i can follow those dreams and i think you know for me seeing the red arrows uh, as i did as a boy at biggin hill um you know was was an, a, a good enough uh, inspiration for me to go into the industry i'm in now mm. um but to to have that opportunity to go in the back of the red jet was was just incredible you know and and um i'm sure it's not lost on anybody uh, in the team whether it's you know a pilot or whether it's somebody on the team that gets that opportunity to fly it's just not lost on them the privilege and, and the opportunity and often you know when i'm flying my my general aviation airplane even getting up in the air whatever you're in it's a privilege you know yeah and and i think we're all we've all come from that background and that's that's the really interesting yeah. bit we you know, we were the ones on the other side of the fence. We were the ones, you know, leaning over at Biggin Hill or, um, you know, Leavesden Aerodrome, which is now where Harry Potter World is, which is where I, you know, I live mm. behind there. That's what got me inspired in aviation. And um, that was what I, you know, that's what got me involved. And it was just that little seed that was enough to make me think about working a bit harder at school, about trying to get those exam results, you know, just striving harder and harder every time to try and finally achieve that ultimate goal, which at the time was just to get in the, the Air Force, let alone to be able to fly anything. And that that seed corn just lives with, every, you know, everyone that I, I know in the Reds. Has, they, all they've done is just keep striving for that little bit more for the thing that's mm. given them the inspiration in the first place. So, yeah, it's, yeah uh, of course. It's incredible, really. Yeah, and I'll, I'll let you keep um, working on your laptop there because there's yeah, another... sure. Well, it's, it should be up and running. So um, I don't know if we're able to bring it back in, but <clears throat> okay. Well, we'll let Mike uh, do his wizardry in the background. It looks there. We, there we go. Good. So it's okay. part of his interlude, and I'll um, I'll carry on, John. Yeah, sure. Thanks, buddy. Um, so yeah, for that. So um, what I was saying, it was a privilege to meet the Queen and knowing where we were taking. So we had trouble uh, hearing you, but uh, we can hear you fine now. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, we, this is where we really bolt the guys on um, five, six, seven chips. And this is about two weeks before the first nine chip in 2019. And you can see, you know, the, the standard is already particularly high before we add um, the next two aircraft onto those formations. Um, big, wide sweeping formations like Phoenix, which are some of the hardest formations that we fly. You know, the guys had absolutely down pat and um, uh, it was just incredible to be able to see how they put that together and you know my trust in them just tenfold expanded and the only thing that really brought the whole thing crashing to a halt in 2019 disappointingly was um poor old simo here who joined in uh, 2019 as as red five oh sorry um joined as uh, red five came to me and presented me with an x-ray and he put it on the table and i hope he doesn't mind me sharing it but it looked like something that the butcher had you know pumped out of his uh out of his desk and you know something the dog would maybe drag in and actually it was a picture of his knee and that big white line that runs pretty much down through the middle was where he'd broken his knee and this was about a week after our first nine ship a really crucial stage of training and um, it was a really critical setback for us because 
we can't just go and dredge people up that that can just jump in as new red arrows pilots who can learn that four months of training and get to the standard that we expect them to be so we had to div, dig dig back into to previous red arrows of which actually at the time there were few still in the service who either were willing to come back or were able to for various um, posting reasons so we were very lucky in that we went to um two airways and a chap who just left called mike bowden bogai who'd left the previous year to embark upon an absolutely brand new career in the commercial aviation industry sector and two of you were very good and said yeah we understand he's just started but we also understand the predicament that you're in and gave us mike back for the year of 2019 a dream shot for mike you know 737 qualified pilot already flying you know line sources down to to cyprus and the holiday islands back into the red arrows for what was going to be one of the most momentous tours and uh, it was great to welcome mike back and he brought a, a level of experience that we probably wouldn't have been able to conduct the 2019 uh, display season without we took ourselves off for our annual spring training. So 2019 was uh, much like the previous years in that we went to Tanagra Air Force Base in Greece. And the reason we were going there and not RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus is that Akrotiri is the hub of most of the operations in the Middle East and was just operationally too busy. So Tanagra, the Hellenic Air Force were very welcoming and took us in and allowed us to train over their airfield, um, over some of their terrain uh, and over some of their magnificent uh, seascapes, which um, you know, we go there to try and replicate what we're going to see in a summer season. We need to be over the smooth, calm water because of the optical illusions that it can affect us. Um, you know, your Bournemouths, your Eastbournes on a really fine sunny day are actually some of the most dangerous places to display because of some of those optical illusions I've just alluded to. And um, I'm sure you'll agree that that coastline there in Greece looks just like Cleethorpes on a sunny Sunday. And um you know, we spend about a month and a half, six weeks uh, out there in Greece, and um, we are given our stamp of approval, a public display authority, where we're allowed to wear our red suits for the first time. And this really marks the start of the season proper. You know, this is six months of rigorous, intense training to get us here. But it means that we're allowed out onto the public stage. We're safe. We're appropriate to display in front of them. And that's really when, for us, the season starts, right at the end of May all the way through until middle of October. We have to get back through Europe. Um, that last year was no exception. We came back through uh, Zadar in Croatia, and we're very good friends with the team over there, the Krila Alua, uh, who are you know really welcoming and took us into Zadar for our first sort of public fly past, which was to welcome us into the city of Zadar. And then it was all about business as usual. So 2019, it was about getting out to the air shows. It was about getting out to meet the people. It was about getting out to conduct those displays, to get some of those magnificent images, to just please people who want to see the Red Arrows display. And whether you're a fan of the Reds or just somebody who likes attending air shows, or you're just a bit of an aviation enthusiast, we all know what the Reds brings. And, and each one of us on the team wants to try and bring a bit of perfection to absolutely every single sortie that we fly. Every single display to us has to try and be better than the previous one. And we debrief religiously to meet those exacting standards. And it doesn't matter whether it's 100 people in a field in northwest Scotland or it's 250,000 people standing on the Bournemouth seafront. Um, we apply the same level of, level of, levels of rigour um, you know, and discipline to absolutely every single one of those displays. 
There were a few notable anniversaries last year in 2019 in the UK. Um, the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings was clearly one of the bigger ones that made its way into the kind of public headlines. And actually, again, a privilege to be able to lead the fly past of the Reds um, over uh, Portsmouth and, and South Sea down on the south coast there. Um, over a number of days, actually, there were a number of events that we took part in, including a full public display. But the part for me that I love is just seeing how much the Reds means to people. We've seen the level that some of the um, camera enthusiasts go to for their photographs. What really struck me was some of the people that we met out and about who were willing to put the Red Arrows on their own flesh and blood. And I mean, that is absolute dedication. And as I sit here with my Reds paraphernalia myself, knowing that even I wouldn't be brave enough to put on one of these tattoos, I absolutely doff my cap to each one of them. And, you know, that is severe dedication. We get to see an awful lot of the country, as you'd expect. We managed to zip up and down the UK in the matter of an hour, an hour and a half. And fly pasts on grand national um, events are no, uh, no surprise to the Red Arrows. This from a tennis game down in Wimbledon that most people have, have heard about. And I show you these photographs, you know, it, to reflect on what a great summer we had last year, but also to acknowledge that you know, 2020 is not going to be the same and, you know, we're not going to be able to watch Wimbledon and hopefully we can just look at, back at, you know, pictures like these that will just remind us of these times are to come back at some stage, but clearly not for 2020. And also our support to British industry. Uh, one of the highlights of the Royal International Air Tattoo was flying for BA's uh, centenary or the centenary of the, the genesis of British Airways and with the BOAC liveried 747 and putting, you know, nine red hawks alongside it and streaming our own inimitable red, white and blue is probably one of those events a bit like yesterday on the VE day where it really makes you proud to be British. And that's not lost on us as the pilots. Yes, we're cocooned from the atmosphere, we're cocooned from the event, but we know how much this means. And, and you know, there's an incredible level of pride inside every one of those cockpits whenever we're tasked to carry out a fly past like this it's just we usually reflect on it after the event because in the heat of the moment there um that's a pretty big block of flats that we're trying to formate against we're in the business of inspiration um and we think we do a reasonable job of it in the aircraft that we fly um there are none more inspiring to someone like me than meeting a spaceman and a real highlight of 2019 was meeting the British astronaut, Tim Peake, and not just meeting him, but being able to take him flying. A previous military helicopter pilot himself and a test pilot, well-versed you know, in the cockpit of any aircraft, let alone sort of fast jets. And what a pleasure it was to fly Tim on the Friday of Riyadh. And I knew as soon as he plugged in his, um, it's called the PEC, the connector that, that connects to the ejection seat and came onto the, the headphone, the intercom system, that he was instantly back in the aviation game. He was picking up the banter on the radios between the other boys, the pilots and the Reds. He was picking up air traffic's intonation. He was picking up the uh, tra air traffic calls. And, you know, that is one talented individual. And what I took heart in is that even though I'm sitting there as the leader of the Red Arrows, um, even I'm completely inspired. That There are things that get me, you know, really excited about aviation about space, you know, a passion of mine, and about the good that people can do. And, and this chap here was absolutely lived up to that mark. Riyadh marks the end of the British display season for us. And I know that disappointed quite a few of our British fans, but it was for good reason. And that was because we were to embark upon what was to be one of the taken on. 
Now, this is a video that will it will stutter. It's a, a small animation, but I will play it anyway, just to give you an idea of where we were trying to embark upon uh, getting the jets. And this was for good reason. The, the Reds, as I've alluded to a number of times, is a strategic asset. It's to be used by government. And they've really embraced this in a number of uh, the recent years with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's great campaign with their logo up in the top left there. And this is about engendering British prosperity overseas. And it was really felt that absolutely having toured the Middle East and the Far East on a number of occasions, that real focus um, could be given to going west this time. In 2019, it was chosen that the Reds would get out to North America, covering Canada and uh, most, of North America, uh, most of the United States. But that brought with it a few risks, none more so than the weather. And that's why the decision was taken to leave at the beginning of August to ensure that we could get all of that huge tour in and guarantee that we were going to be back by about the middle of October when things turned really sporty in some of those parts that we were flying over. None more so <clears throat> than um, when we got to uh, uh, our transits to get out to North America. So, you know, the, the, the places that we had to take the jets to even get to North America themselves are not all that hospitable, especially later on in October. And hopefully those of you watching at home will understand why we had to leave when we did. The route itself was was not without risk. You know, we had to take the jets from Scampton to Lossy Mouth, my old base, refuel, cross to Iceland, where, you know, Iceland's um, uh, completely civilised. You know, it's an airfield that's used a lot every day with lots of commercial aircraft. But then we're embarking upon a 700-mile sea crossing where the sea is about two or three degrees temperature, degrees C, above um, freezing. We're in a single-engined aircraft of a particular vintage, and that risk was very well researched and took months and months of understanding what we needed as far as search and rescue assets and how we were going to how we were going to go about getting there. The transit itself was spectacular. And if you haven't seen our most recent documentary about getting to the States, I do implore you to watch it because just for some of the footage that we managed to get from the cockpits and we'll roll VT. And if I'm able to talk over it, I will do so. But it's um, being able to see. Uh, how to get into some of these airfields that are used by um, general aviation aircraft when they're hopping across between Europe and America, flowing down these ice fields, these fjords in Greenland, into a tiny little airfield, and it's the only airfield we can land at. If we can't land at this tiny little airfield, Narsasuak, as it's called here, just coming up, we have nowhere else to go. We don't have enough fuel to go to another airport. We don't have enough fuel to divert because of weather. So the weather has to be perfect. The conditions have to be just right, and we have to make sure that we're getting the aircraft in there appropriately. We took them across in two lots of six, so 12 aircraft in total, but we did it in two separate sections. And that was so that we de-risked anything happening on the runway that might block the runway for the other aircraft um, to be able to fly. And, you know, when you finally land in at an airfield like Nars Arsuak, which has got icebergs, you know, I think... Apologies. It's got icebergs at the end of the uh, at the end of the runway. There, it's a real feeling of relief. And even for me, as a sort of twenty year uh, military pilot, uh, to be able to touch down somewhere like that, knowing that we've made what is a significant sea crossing under significant risk, was probably the most relieving bit of the entire tour. And we'd only just started; it was only day three. 
seeing six or 12 red aircraft with an A400 in this tiny little airfield in Greenland can't help but make you feel proud. And I just put this picture up because it just gives you an idea of the sense, the hive of activity that was ongoing there as we tried to quickly refuel them. We serviced the aircraft with our pre-deployed engineers who'd come in the back of that A400. We had the documentary team, documentary team trying to document everything going on. And we only had about an hour on the ground because we needed to get to Canada before it started getting dark, before the weather started to clamp in. It's a real feeling of pressure and a, you know, a sense of urgency to get onwards, to get on with the tour. And it wasn't really until we landed in Goose Bay in Labrador in Canada that really we could embark upon the tour proper. I won't go into every um, airfield in detail, but just to give you an idea of what we were embarking upon, it crossed the entirety of North America, you know, east coast to west coast and a bit of flipping around in between up and down the East Coast quite a lot, New York, Atlantic City, Washington, back up to Toronto, for example, across to Chicago, down to kind of Dallas and um, Texas, up to the Northwest in uh, Vancouver, back into Canada, Seattle, uh, Oregon, uh, and then down finally finishing up on the West Coast. And clearly what an amazing experience and what an amazing place to go and take our show to the North American airshow industry. There's some educated people out there in the airshow world in North America and the the feeling, you know, the sense of anxiety of knowing that we were going on a stage with some incredible teams that they have in North America, the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and the Canadian Snowbirds to name but a few. But the backdrop of some of those places display like Chicago here, you know, trying to get between safely the skyscrapers where we're used to maybe um, you know, I give Bournemouth again as an example or Blackpool with its, uh, you know, with its tower there, which stretches to about 800 feet high. And then we're dealing with, uh, you know, the Hancock Centre here in Chicago up to about 1500 feet uh, elevation, uh, 1500 feet above the ground. And we've got to somehow safely nav navigate around the back of these to be able to put on this display, which is right down on the seafront, just just kind of off the, the side of the picture there on the right. Hopefully this picture will come out on virtual land, but it's probably one of my favorites. It's spot the nine ship and you can just about see from the other angle, you know, the jets just there and just left of the middle behind some of those skyscrapers, just to give you an idea of, of the, the complexity of an air show site like Chicago. But what really struck us was the welcome that we got, the, the freedom of the airspace that we were given that I asked myself if another team were to come to the UK, would they be given similar rights in the UK? And actually, it did give us an idea of this special relationship that we have with America in particular, but but likewise in Canada. This was in Ottawa. This is over Parliament Hill. This is one of the first public flypasts we did on the tour. We opened Ottawa up um, and Parliament Hill to be given free reign of their nation uh, nation's capital's airspace for about 20 minutes to put on this display of pomp and pageantry, very similar to V-Day yesterday was that was the start you know that was the start of the tour and gave us a real depth of feeling as to how this was going to play out for the next um, 12 weeks clearly um, the other thing was our partnerships you know and the allies that we were flying with most of whom us as pilots in the air force have flown with on operations before you'll have seen photographs of which i'll share a few more of uh, us flying down the hudson in new york again being given free reign to fly over new york down the hudson with the thunderbirds ahead of us and four fifth-generation lethal fighters tucked into formation behind us doesn't just happen, you know, on the flip of a coin or on a whim. This took months of planning, 
but it also just went some way to explain that relationship that both we felt uh, and was also deemed, you know, so important at strategic levels. This is particularly poignant in this photograph for me because I knew the F-35 demo pilot who's leading the two F-35s, and you can really get a sense of the size of the F-35 compared to the F-22. But as these guys swooped down upon us from 40,000 feet where they'd been holding, waiting for us to get airborne, one of the voices on the radio was British. And actually, one of the guys flying the F-22 is the British exchange pilot who some of the guys on the team had served on the Typhoon with. And I just thought, you know, what a level of partnership to have British pilot flying an American fighter over New York with the Red Arrows. And you just don't get more iconic than that. Uh, our photographers, they do an amazing job. And most of these airborne folks you've, you've seen from them, um, Ash Keats, uh, who was the corporal come sergeant at the end of the tour. Um, and then we had Rose Buchanan and then Hannah Smoker, who took the majority of all of these photos. And, you know, they, they will live in the annals of the Red Arrows history, but also aviation history for years to come. And I mean, look at this down up in the Hudson Valley before we flew past. What I mean, what a photograph. And if that, you know, if that doesn't make you enthused about aviation, then I don't think much will, to be perfectly honest. And then seeing New York, just seeing those skyscrapers, a place I've spent a bit of time. But, you know, getting glimpses of Central Park, getting glimpses of places we knew. And some of the guys hadn't even been to New York and were recognizing these. And Yes, it does look like we're quite high. That was for good reason, because there's quite a lot of general aviation traffic that sit underneath us. But it's still got us these iconic images that really, um, you know, went some way to, to give us the strength of the feeling of, of what we'd set out to achieve and hopefully did so over that period of 12 weeks. Liberty Island, you know, looping around the back end of Liberty to come up over the VZ Bridge and then back over again for photographs like this. And just small snippets that you might not realize when you first look at them. But, you know, you look at the shadows down there. There's clearly our shadow, which is the bottom one, just sort of streaks just to the, the bottom of um, Lady Liberty herself. Um, but what you don't see is uh, is the other shadow just to the top end of the island, which is the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds who are smoking away with us that are not in the photograph. But, you know, make for just highlight moments for us as pilots and hopefully for anyone who's watching at home back up into canada you know niagara falls a place i've been to on the ground and never um, in a million years did i expect that we would be flying over the top of that on our way up to toronto and um, for the national air show in toronto we got there and we got together with our brethren the, the canadian air force um, snowbirds who operate a very similar method to the way the red arrows do there are a nine ship display team. Um, they deploy the same methods as we do. Uh, their aircraft is, is slightly older than ours and they only have single colored smoke, but they really extract every single ounce of energy out of that aircraft. And the display they put on is phenomenal. And I think for us as humans, as us as pilots, to be able to sit back and watch that display and just glean a little bit from what they do and just think, you know, this is serious competition, although it's not competition because we consider them absolute allies. But you know, there's some real bits that we, we took away from that tour of, of, you know, how the Red Arrows do business compared to some of these other teams. And again, you know, Red 10 putting his jet in the right place to get an image like this with the snowbirds in a perfect line of breast formation, which if if you're not a flyer and even if you are a flyer, if you've done some formation, you will understand how difficult it is to fly line of breast formation like that. We do, we very rarely do it. We might do it on a transit sortie for a photograph but the snowbirds have this in every single show and being able to see this up close and tuck my formation in right behind snowbird leader 
you know, and almost see the camera pointing back that they've got in their tank. Um, we felt, you know, what an amazing 18-ship formation display to pull on over Lake Ontario there. And that was before we then peeled away and got, you know, the display of, you know, one of the highlights of the tour was the display over Lake Ontario. I've got relatives who live in Toronto. I know this place really well. And there we are, you know, we're, we're doing the vertical break from 6,000 feet. I'm looking down upon what's known as the CN Tower, if anyone knows it. It's just out of shot, actually, just on the right there. But, you know, backdrops like this that, yes, the backdrops are spectacular in the UK, but we never expected to find ourselves in these sort of scenarios. And we got to fly with our oppos. We got to fly with our muckers. A picture taken here by, I think, Red 9 by Dan in the back of, or in the side of a snowbird. These guys fly a, um, a side-by-side cockpit in the tutor there, you know, and see how skilled and talented our fellow pilots are and see how they do their business. And, and like I say, learn something from them. We get a lot of questions about the American display teams. I cannot under um, understate how talented and professional um, these guys are to their mission at hand and the task that they set themselves from a display season that's probably about cumulatively eight weeks longer than the Red Arrows, um, all the way through till the end of November, flying their high-performance frontline fighters as close as they do, and it really is close. Um, you know, it, it, it is mind-blowing, and it's great for us to see that, to almost reset, to get an, an idea of, you know, what can be done and, and how they do it. And clearly there are aircraft and technological differences, um, but we can sort of talk about those later. And the guys got to fly with them. You know, Bondi here got an amazing photograph on their sort of sanctioned GoPros of him flying with a team. And it just, again, gave you some way of understanding that the kind of relationships that we had with them that were incredibly close and got to really see behind closed doors how they do their business. And we did the same by taking some of their guys flying with us. Not content with one astronaut in my logbook, um, I managed to bag another one and seeing Chris Hadfield, who is a Canadian celebrity um, in his own right for, for the work he did up in the ISS, you know, a former shuttle commander. And when he spins you these stories of being in space, you know, for the third time and you think, here we are. And, you know, I, I felt I, I've never felt so small. And, you know, that's that's me saying that and, and sort of being able to wear the red red suit with pride. But when, you know, Chris Hadfield's in your vicinity and it's his 60th birthday and he jumps in your back cockpit, again, an F-18 pilot um, of old, completely in his stride, and again, a hugely inspiring individual. And that gave us the impetus to go out there, to get amongst what we do, our raison d'etre for here in the UK, wherever we are in the world, it doesn't really matter. Yes, we have a recruitment drive, but actually what we're trying to do is engage people in science, technology, engineering, and maths. Clearly a huge media outlet that we could just expand upon our mission on behalf of the government but also really stir up some emotion about science technology engineering and maths and then if you're going to get anywhere you know if you're going to get into the psyche of the north americans the way to do it is by their sports events and like i say to be invited over their nation's capital to fly over their national game of baseball um, this is over the washington nationals to open you know the first um, the first ball of that game and then be presented on the field after we'd landed with a rousing, rapturous um, applause. Uh, you, you can't, you can't help but the hairs in the back of your neck go up on end. And you know we were able through some technological wizardry to get the image bottom right beamed straight into the, the the screen that you see there, top left, and really left our mark because these guys aren't used to seeing red, white, and blue smoke. You know the Nationals play in red and white, and it, you know it really suited um, the whole occasion. And actually. 
these guys went on to win the World Series. And um, I'm not going to take any credit for that because on the day that we flew past, they actually lost the game. But, you know, hopefully we we had some some effort there. Um, let me just skip this one on. Apologies. It was a whole team effort. I've alluded to the A400. We had a lot of augmentees from all around the Air Force, logisticians, medics, police folk, um, you know, really working every hour of the day for 12 weeks to get our message across, visiting military units, talking to them about what we do and who we represent and brokering some of those business deals. You know, we had some quite small bespoke events on behalf of the government in an effort to engender this British prosperity and whilst we don't have a metric for any of the um, impetus that we managed to generate, we certainly do from the 2016 China campaigns. We're able to engage with up to one billion people through social media as well. And that in itself is a hugely useful tool. We went to Lockheed Martin and flew the display for the guys uh, who build the F-35, which is a fighter that we now have in the RAF inventory. And we put on question and answers. We visited museums. We did uh, outreach programs, as I've already mentioned. And I've kind of touched upon the media aspects. And another hugely important part for us with our allies is paying remembrance. Um, we were out there um, during the remembrance of Battle of Britain. And actually, we managed to visit the site of 9-11, where, you know, clearly the site of such huge atrocities, um, not just for the civilian populace, but also, you know, the military that were involved in our, um, uh, you know, our serving civilian uh, service folk in the fire and um, health service. And actually, that was an evocative moment to be able to stand upon reflection, Paul, on the day of the event and, and remember with them what happened uh, on 9-11. Again, just some more holiday snaps for you. You've seen that one already. Um, here's Washington, an incredible place, just to the top of my nose, just at the just above my aircraft at the front there. You'll probably just spot the White House. Uh, this is one of the most protected parts of the airspace in the world for good reason. And um you know, we did lots of mental and uh, 3D modeling with the software that we use and we fly with uh, to make sure, you know, if I flick back between that picture and the one before, you can see there's that's in our left-hand bend. And that was exactly as we planned it on that image on the left there. And um, we probably couldn't have cut it much finer because if I show you the airspace, that red box is the do not go in this red box, otherwise you will be shot down. And we probably got it about as close as we could um, for that amazing photograph. The rest of the time, crisscrossing the country, you know, working with our partners, working with our allies. But actually, really, for us, that that you know, that the the reason we were there was to engage with the people. It was to tell them about the United Kingdom. It was to show them what the Red Arrows can do, and it was really to give them a sense of pride in Britain if they happen to be British overseas, or just open their eyes as to what you know this island has to offer, and if nothing else, just show them what aviation can provide. I'll leave you with a couple more pictures just before we wrap up. I, I particularly love this because I'm not actually sure who, who's more confused here, um, whether it's Red Nine there, Steve Morris, or, or the kid who's actually explaining how many rivets are in the Hawk. And clearly, hands in the bar for Red Ten, but you know, doing a great job of explaining to, to youth about um, the simplicities of aviation and just that inspirational part. Friends and brothers, and we've made these friends for life. I still talk to the Thunderbird leader. You know, we still WhatsApp back and forth about, you know, the work they're doing at the moment for their inspirational flights over the capital cities. Um, America strong. You know, they're talking about their healthcare um, uh, volunteers and, and, you know, commemorating them. We've got the Blue Angel guys that the guys are still in touch with, you know, and just being able to come home with images like this of us over 
um, the Golden Gate Bridge, being able to see the Golden Gate Bridge from 30 or 40 miles away and knowing that we had free reign of the airspace, getting this once in a lifetime opportunity and this once in a lifetime shot, which was, I, I kid you not, you know, a one shot from Ash there who took it in the back cockpit of Red 10's aircraft, you know, to working with um, the Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic guys with their um, with their incredible projects and, and Mojave. And no American tour is complete without either, you know, a trip to the Hollywood sign or the Californian beaches where we were privileged to put on our display to a whooping and a hollering audience. And they're so enthusiastic about what we do that it really made for such incredible times for all of us. We got some of the best imagery we've ever had. And it really highlighted, you know, what was such a an ambitious tour, but so well executed. And, you know, this was the last display of our season in 2019. And in fact, the last public display that, that I flew as, as Red One. And I, and I hope it's not the same, you know, or my last ever, should I say. Um, task in hand was finished. We needed to get home. Again, I'll just show you some photographs because we've spoken about the inhospitability of some of these places that we went through, but we got stuck in Greenland for two or three days and you know, it's down to minus 12. Our engineers absolutely dug out for us here. You know, they managed to fit um, these freezing cold aircraft, which had been up to, you know, the, the, the temperatures up at height there are just insane, um, to then instantly get them into the hangar, fitting 12 aircraft into the space of a six aircraft hangar. You know, and then this picture I show you bottom left where we were trying to get from Canada to Greenland and we actually got half the way across. The weather wasn't fit for us to land in Greenland, and we had to turn around at what's known as the point of no return, PNR. So you can imagine my relief, as shown in the picture on the right, when we made it to Scotland, we made it back to Stornoway for an overnight refuel stop, and then none more so than we brought the team back home to Scampton, you know, on October the 12th or 14th, as it was last year. Um, our own band of supporters waiting for us at home at Scampton, and, you know, Having been away from home, although we're military aviation professionals, it doesn't uh, it doesn't stop. You know, you cannot help but get a tear in your eye when you see the kids running out to meet you, meet and greet you. And you know that people have given their absolute all when you sort of see a grown man crying, you know, because of the effort that he's put in on an event like this. Particular thanks to our engineers um, who work throughout the year at this level of pace. Here they are out on a tarmac in um, Denver, Colorado, uh, replacing wheels on an aircraft up until one o'clock in the morning to guarantee we could fly them on a display the next day to allow us to achieve our task, which whether it is here in the UK or overseas is to represent this amazing nation. And the back end of 2019 was no exception. That's me complete. You know, I've got one more photograph which really summed up 2019 for us. I'm sure Wendy and I will probably chat a little bit about 2020. Percy, I've got a huge smile on my face uh, and no doubt everybody who's uh, listened to what is has been just an enlightening, um, you know, peek into the team and into your uh, North American tour, you know, it's just fantastic. So I hope everyone else is feeling the same as I am. Full of pride as well after that fantastically... Uh, produced uh, video and that truly is um, behind the scenes if I'm uh, not misunderstood it's something that he was put together for the team uh, as, as a memento so so uh, absolutely brilliant um, Perty thank you for your openness and honesty you know it's humbling to listen to you talk about your career you know highlight um, how we all learn you know as we pursue 
um, what we're trying to pursue in terms of our career goals. And and I think you know the the um, of course eclat excellence. You know we're in constant pursuit of excellence. And I hope there's some people who have been inspired from uh, what you've. Uh, shared with us today. So thank you very much, Pertie, and, and for putting the time and effort into uh, to produce this for us. Absolutely, pleasure, John. Um, so I've just been trawling the, uh, the the questions, and I can tell you there's quite a few coming in. Um, there's a there's a common theme, and that is 2020. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of uncertainty for all of us at the moment. Um, you know, hopefully this weather keeps behaving as it is. We may see something towards the end of the season. I know there's been no government, uh, official government comment on that. Um, but in terms of the team, Perty, what are you guys doing to maintain readiness? Uh, and should there be an opportunity for you to come back in front of the public? Yeah, absolutely. Um, clearly, what a, you know, what a terrible um, set of circumstances. And you know, for all of us on the team, just the first thought is clearly of everyone who's affected, because we, we can't forget. You know, this is this is utterly tragic. What's going on? Um, it's a really crucial time, and I kind of alluded to it last year. March time is around about the time we conduct our first nine ship, and actually, we had just conducted this year's first nine ship. Um, by the time that then the, the sort of lockdown measures started to come into force uh, kind of two weeks after that. So a really crucial time for our training. We also usually go away overseas to, to make use of good weather, not that it's been particularly bad um, over in Greece. And we were um, obviously disappointed to find out that that, that had been cancelled for obvious reasons and rightly so. But what it's left us with is is a bit of a quandary as to what what do we actually do? And, and we're kind of the same as everyone at home in that we we are only going to work when it's absolutely essential to do so. Uh, we clearly cannot work from home. So um, to maintain legal currencies, we have been flying. We've been maintaining um, a very core level of training to be able to conduct national flypasts, which the first of which you saw was yesterday. Um, we have had the authority to start to train more aerobatically, but we need to just make sure that it's uh, appropriate to do so. So um, our chain of command and, and us at the Reds are monitoring the situation very closely then we get into the question of what what is it we're actually training to do and as you know more and more air shows disappointingly sort of drop off the list for absolutely understandable reasons you know hearing about i think it was eastbourne just just during the week there unfortunately has, has decided to um to cancel understandably so it gets to a point um where there is a you know there's, there's this critical mass what what's the number of air shows that are still still viable and still um, going to be on at the end of the season that is worth expending so much time and so much effort and, and you know so much sort of personal um, strife for so we're still assessing that display if, if further knock-on effects we have worries about what that means for future years you know and the experience levels of Synchro, for example, who we rely on those overwater training sources out in Greece, you know, where it is mill pond calm, where it's flat calm, where it causes all sorts of visual illusions, depth perception that just gives you um, the experience that you are confident and appropriately safe enough to go and display in. If we haven't done that because we can't get to the coast here on the east coast of Lincolnshire or, you know, it, we just can't use the airspace, what do we do? Can we replicate that anywhere else? Um, do we limit the sorties that we're flying? Do we limit the display sites that we can go to? So, you know, it's this constant juggling act at the moment. And we all we do is, as much like everyone else at home, is 
is we just monitor the situation on a daily basis. We speak to our chain of command, which you know trust entrusted by that chain of command, and and we will make a decision at some point as to as to what we do. We are absolutely looking to try and achieve PDA. It is going to be in the UK. It's just at what level do we then, you know, PDA has to be PDA. There's no qualms about that. It's a clat, as you mentioned. It has to be the level of Red Arrow's performance for the 55-year previous history of this team. But we then need to just ascertain whether we can drag and drop that into the various display sites that we would usually do at the drop of a hat with any thinking. Yeah, sure. And certainly, you know, in, in, in terms of having to... Uh, be flexible and accommodate the, uh, the the changing situation. Of course, it's hard to make any you know firm decisions, and uh, you know, and that's completely understandable. In terms of in terms of the team as a whole, um, you know, you know, the the, the nine pilots um, and and the entire squadron. What what's the level of um, activity? You know, what are you doing to um, maintain morale? Because obviously, you know, we want to make sure that we can get in the air as soon as possible. I mean, what's what's going on in the squadron at the moment? Yeah. Okay. Um, so just as a backdrop for the last week, running up to the uh, VE Day flypast, we were flying um, once, sometimes twice a day in that week run up period, mainly for legal currencies, just to maintain what we call continue continue continuation training it's a bit more I doubt um, and then up to the formations because you can't just have six weeks off and then go and fly a nine ship it just it, it's not safe so um, we did that uh, we had to do that in front of our senior officer as well to, to show him that it was appropriate that because you've got to remember our team haven't PDA you know we're not wearing the red suits so technically for a public outing such as VE day it needs to be signed off at quite a high level that the team are are safe to do I'd say in kind of every other day on the squadron, it's kind of helped that most of us live, you know, I'm here at Scampton, I live just behind the base, so we're not travelling particularly far. We are still maintaining distancing measures at work, believe it or not, so, you know, we are maintaining two metres away, even in the briefing room, and, you know, I've, the number of times I've read the joke about our formations being socially distant, <laughs> really. Um, Clearly, you know, once you're in the jet, it, it, it's slightly different. But, you know, back into the debrief, everyone's kind of maintaining that distancing. So we're, we're under the same um, measures as everyone else where absolutely uh, we have to be. You know, we have to be and we have to keep fit and well. Um, morale's a big one. That's a, t that's a really tricky one. Yesterday went a long way for the nation, but it went a long way for our squadron as well because it's very difficult to really plug away at something every day, you know, time after time. It's quite a repetitive business, but... You know, incremental gains and, and if you haven't got a task at the end of it, it, it you almost you know we're like we're, we are human you know you ask yourself what you're what you're trying to achieve so yeah morale i'm blessed with a highly talented highly professional bunch of individuals but just making sure that we are we're doing it appropriately and, and making sure that morale is as of a requisite level is 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 another challenge that we're faced yeah well look i'm sure uh, you're going to be uh, you know pressing the flesh as much as you possibly can to uh, see if we can achieve something uh, you know this season so we we all cross our fingers and and we hope uh, that the future is the future will be bright we just need to see what 2020 is going to bring us so um look i'm going to uh, give you um five questions here Pertie. um <laughs> sure. otherwise we'll be here till dinner time <laughs> so so here's the first one and it, you probably covered this a little bit, but the question here is how how do you even begin to compute the scale of what was achieved on your recent North American tour? 
from a personal perspective. Now, you talked about that you've managed to diarise it through the documentary, but you know, if you look back, how do you, you know, what, what do you see? What, what I remember most about the tour is that when I first, I first heard about the American tour before I'd even taken over as the leader, there was this bubbling rumour <clears throat> in the sort of, you know, the Red Arrows network that, that we might be going on tour. And what that presents you is a level of um, anticipation, a level of excitement that, that you're going to be, you know, possibly up the front for this, this huge tour. And I think just much like everything else that I've, I've been up to in my career is half of me doesn't believe it until I'm actually there. And you know the wheels are on the deck in America, and that was that was absolutely true. Um, and the rest of it is is a common trick that most people use, which is just kind of goal setting and making sure that what we're trying to achieve is just a little bit further ahead. And then you know you, once you get there, you're, you're then thinking about the next thing. So for me, you know, a lot of my worries and you know missed heartbeats were thinking about the transit across the Atlantic because that that's you know reasonably hairy as far as even military aviation goes. So that took my focus off the rest of the tour a different level of focus once we got there and it was right what we're we trying to achieve here i did have a laugh for the documentary crew in that they um they, they had a knack of effectively coming up with a camera at the end of every sortie wherever it was and they pretty much followed every single sortie and you know what they want is that human emotion and they want you to give them how it felt which was great because i got out of the cockpit on every single one of those flights and you know my instant reaction was this is a career high for me. This is the best, the best thing that's ever happened to me in an aeroplane, and I'm never going to better it. And then the very next, some fly past with the Thunderbirds and the F-35s, and then they come out. And go, right, what what was that like? That was an absolute career high, and I'm never going to better it. And it's going to be the best thing in my career. And then the next day, I'm flying um, Chris Hadfield, and then the next day we're over Golden Great Bridge. So, you know, we had a bit of a laugh, and I think it's just. One time, you know, sort of embarked upon it, um, and actually, really, it was just in that two-week leave period. Once we landed back in the UK on October the fifteenth, and collapsed, you know, into our, you know, various sort of family houses, and and then just kind of reflected upon what what we'd done and and where we'd been, and and I think that in itself is is the level of enjoyment I take. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, here's um, uh, a question about so back in the cockpit um what does it what does the word trust mean as a red arrows pilot is that asked by is that being asked by a red arrows pilot it, no no thankfully not no by an airability person <laughs> um okay trust yeah I, i've spoken about trust before and um you know the quote that's been used by me um is that it, it's the one thing that binds the whole team together um it really is and and that's why our selection process is so rigorous and that's why we expend an awful lot of time and energy in getting to know every single one of the team. And that's not just the pilots. That's our maintainers. You know, that's our technicians. Because we need to be able to trust that they've done their job in making these aircraft airworthy. And we, you know, they trust us when we take them flying or we are going to execute the task that we've been set. You know, we're going to deploy the red, white and blue at the right time that they've spent all night, you know, pumping the dye and the smoke in for. So it it permeates at all levels of the team and it starts with the selection process and that's why it's so rigorous. Um, and clearly, you know, that if you if you knuckle this right down, it's our pink bodies that are on the line when we're flying together, which is why the trust amongst the, the nine display pilots is absolutely crucial. Because if you're flying next to somebody that you've just had a, you know, a, a 
to do with in um, you know in the briefing room beforehand or in the previous debrief, or he's done something to undermine your confidence or your trust. It's a very difficult ask to then be able to go and fly six feet away from him upside down at, at 500 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, do you fly outside of the Red Arrows? I do. And I take an awful lot of stick for it. I, I've kept my private pilot's license, which I got at the age of 17. and was very proud to get. I, um, I've kept that current ever since. So I'm not going to tell you how many years that is. But, yeah, I've... Um, I've got a real thing for general aviation. It, it's my release. It's my get out. It's my, um, you know, it's my, it's my relaxation because whilst flying these things is is incredible and the views that we get and the speeds that we travel, you can just imagine and, and you've seen some of. Uh, you know, when I was a an air cadet on 2F Squadron back at Watford and being able to sort of visualise what I could do with my time and realise that flying a light aircraft was one of those things even at the age of 16, um, I knew that, uh, you know, I was going to stick with it. And actually, I still do it at the weekends. And my wife does not understand why I spend <laughs> five days a week, three times a day flying upside down in, you know, in one of these things and then poodles around at 100 knots in a in a Piper or a, or a Cessna out of Elstree Aerodrome. She just doesn't get it. And and I've spent the last however many years trying to explain it. And I think I'll probably stop because, yeah, it's a real passion of mine. Yeah, I, I can tell. That's for sure. Um, and uh, a question here is your most memorable um, flight, and that's obviously not just the last year, but yeah, the last. Okay, um, I'll break it down. Uh, uh, this is not me being diplomatic, but I've got three actually, and they're all in different countries. One of which is clearly in the UK. Um, you probably expect me in the UK to say some one of the big platinum events like Riyadh or um, you know or Bournemouth, which are incredible stages to display upon. But actually, the one that I remember and will, will go with me to my dying days was when we were down in Exeter about to put on a display in a place called Sidmouth, which is just down the coast from Exeter. <clears throat> and it was an awful day. It was, there was rain on the deck for, um, we, we'd landed in, I think the day before there was rain on the deck all day. And the display was at around about four 30. It was planned. And there was this small glimmer of hope in the Met office forecast that at maybe four o'clock it might improve. And we got to four o'clock and it was still, it wasn't fog, but it was just sheeting with rain. But I spoke to Red 10 and he said, listen, Sidmouth is quite a place. And the the locals here are very proud of their air show. They're very proud of their, their town. And we, you know, they're here. And if there's any scope of a window of opportunity, I think you should probably take it. And that was the wisest words 10's ever said to me. And we waited and actually there was a glimmer of hope at 6.30 and we thought, is it actually worth waiting all this time? Of course it's worth it. And we waited and even there, pretty murky and it's, you know, quite dangerous conditions and kind of get there. And we sort of skirted along the coast. We couldn't see the coastline. I was out over sea and Coz on the radio said, look, there's a tiny gap behind me that's coming this way. If you think you can get up over the cliff and then back down again and just give them a couple of fly pasts, you know, that's it. And I'm never one to push the rules. I, I ha That is not on my shoulders to be risking, you know, anyone's um, anyone's time, especially my pilots. Um, but we schnebled through and it was legal and it was just about fit. And we ended up down over Sidmouth and I looked up and the cloud had just parted, blue sky, sunshine, and we ended up doing the full show over Sidmouth wow. with this gap about that big over Sidmouth. 
and ten said, and you know, it makes me emotional thinking about. It. He said it was probably the best show of 2018. The crowd just went absolutely wild. They sodden in their rain jackets and and just having incredible. It was back of Monaco at the Monaco Yacht Show, and then thirdly, Huntington Beach uh, over in California. That that is probably the most perfect backdrop for an air show if you're going to ask for it. So yeah, three there. Wonderful memories, Perty. Wonderful. Well, here's the last question. Um, uh, do you exchange any ideas or safety-related issues with uh, the other national air display teams? Absolutely. That's a really good question. Um, we do. We absolutely do. And um, that has been strengthened somewhat between uh, us and the American team since our tour. In fact, since a couple of years before the tour, when myself and squadron leader Adam Collins, Red 10, went across to the airshow convention in the States to, to kind of plant the seed of, of us coming on tour. And um, we had a very frank, very open discussion with the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels and the Snowbirds. And in fact, some of their other teams, the the, um, the Golden Knights, the sort of parachute display teams. And we sat down and we, we it was gloves off. It was, you know, air dirty laundry, talk about, you know, team issues, talk about safety related cases from, from years gone by, talk about, you know, what's affecting the team. So it's really open, really honest, and that allows us to just learn from each other because we're all in the same business. We're, we're there to inspire people and we're there to put on a spectacle. We're not competing with one another. You know, that is a common fallacy. We're there to do the best that we can and and we absolutely do. I, I touched on the Croatian display team and last year we were flying with the French at uh, Riyadh. We're both putting on double Concorde, the Concorde formation and uh, the 50th celebrations of Concorde's first flight. And we spent a good a great weekend with the French display team, much the same talking about all of these common traits and talking about the things that are different because it would get boring if things weren't different. And, you know, I'm not looking to steal every idea, but there might just be one little glimmer of something that we can bring to the red arrows that we've seen elsewhere that, that, that works well. Yeah, absolutely. Perty, well, that's it. Otherwise, um, well, I can't keep you away from your family uh, any much longer. Mine neither. Thank you so much uh, on behalf of all at Airability um, and those watching. Uh, we are streaming live on, on YouTube and also our Facebook channel. Um, it only goes for me to say uh, we all wish you and the team well uh, for the rest of the 2020 season. Hopefully we'll see you at some point. Um, but uh, but Perty, for now, thank you. Um, I'm going to bring uh, Mike Miller-Smith back in, um, and uh, hopefully we can um, we can sign off here, Mike, uh, with a few words from you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, guys. That was just fabulous. I think in Airability's 26-year history, of the top 10 moments this afternoon was one of them. It was really absolutely fascinating just to get behind the scenes. Thank you, Mike. Such a such a wonderful background too the team that we all love so much as a nation. And I think, you know, Airability will, you know, all the guys at Airability would like me to say that, again, 26 years of the charity, over the last 10 years, the DNA of the Red Arrows has become part of the charity. The support you give us and the uh, the way you, you help us and uh, support us as a huge benefit. So thank you so much for that continued support. And thank you very much personally, Martin. That's just brilliant what you do for us. Thank you, Mike. It's a complete pleasure for all of us. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to say it one more time. I'm going to put it on screen now. If you would like to support the charity, it'd be much appreciated. Just a few pounds helps us to do this amazing outreach program, Inspirability, and uh, the link is probably on the video screen just underneath in the text. So thank you, everybody. Enjoy your Saturday afternoons. 
let's get those Barbies fired up and uh, we'll see you very soon for the next Inspirability. Cheers all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.